Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkron, and today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Arvind Sharma, who is the Burke's Professor of Comparative Religion um, in the School of Religious Studies at McGill University uh, in Montreal, uh, Canada. Uh, Dr. Sharma, it is a pleasure and an honor to have you on the podcast, so welcome. Thank you, and for me too. Uh, you've had uh, you've had quite a uh, rich career, and you've published uh, in a number of subfields. Uh, today, we're speaking about a book called "Religious Tolerance: a History," and it is a comparative enterprise. Perhaps you can begin by telling us how this project came about. What was the impetus for it? Well, I always. I was curious about uh, the theme of religious tolerance. And when I looked at the books which dealt with it, I found that they typically uh, quoted from the texts, the sacred texts of the traditions uh, and its main spokespersons. But what I was interested in was the field reality as to what actually happens in the tradition when it is practiced. So I made several attempts at preparing a book of this kind, but discarded them because I found them, frankly, too boring in the sense that there would just be a litany of uh, quotes from various texts about how to treat the other person who does not belong to your tradition and so on, without any ballast, you know, as to, it's just passages floating in the air, sort of, for me. I wanted to ground it historically And I think this was my third attempt. And finally, I gave up that approach and decided to go into the history of these traditions and see where these traditions had actually interacted with other traditions and how. So the book is divided into um, three parts, not dissimilar from from, uh, many, uh, an intro world religions textbook. There is... Uh, a part on Abrahamic religions, a part on uh, Indic religions, probably most apropos for this podcast, but nevertheless, the others are of great interest. And the third part is on uh, East Asian religions. So maybe let's start with uh, the heart of the text uh, in terms of uh, Indic religions. And you can tell us um, a bit about the, the, the each tradition that you cover in those chapters. Well, I think since we are dealing with uh, these four traditions uh, of Indian origin, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, and Sikhism, it might be wise for me to say something um, about what applies to all of them, you know, in general. And what struck me uh, in this exercise was that the other, I mean, to put it very briefly, and as a soundbite, 
there is no other. There is only another. You know, it's like in human beings, two human beings, you, you meet somebody. Now there is a, you have two options. You can treat him as just another human being like you, or you can treat the other person as something different from you, other than you. So this is the point of the play of another and other. So Hindu, in Hinduism and in other traditions, the other is not a theological problem. And I believe this would, I mean, his theology may be a problem, but he, is not a, he or she is not a theological problem. In the sense that you are prepared to debate things. See, tolerance does not mean that you accept everything. Tolerance indicates a basic acceptance that the other person has a right to the position the person is holding. Just as you have a right to your own. And that's where you start from. So, so what, what sort yeah, of... This yes, sorry. Go ahead, please. Right point to add that later on I discovered that this attitude is, was typical of pre-modern Asia. In China, Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism were not treated as mutually exclusive categories. Similarly, in Japan, Shinto, Buddhism, and Confucianism were not treated as exclusive to each other. See, this is, is dramatized by the fact uh, that you cannot be a Jew, a Christian, and a Muslim at the same time. Although all three believe in one God, and therefore presumably the same God in some sense. Yeah? But in China, part of your life could be spent as a Confucian scholar, and you may end your life in a Buddhist monastery or a Taoist retreat. You know? So are these categories entirely a function of our study of religion then? It is, no, so this is this idea that you can only belong to one religion at a time is a very Western idea. And by Western, I mean one which is associated with the so-called traditions, the Abrahamic traditions, which are also called Western. Now you have elements of this idea within Asia also, because you have sects, but it never takes over in the sense that the whole tradition uh, of that culture or nation insists on exclusiveness. So if I'm understanding correctly, um, just to recap for our listeners, um, uh, the, the, the Abrahamic religions are more predicated on an idea of mutual exclusivity such that one needs to be either a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim. Whereas, whereas according to what you're saying, um, both in the um, religions uh, of ancient India, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, and also in the, the, the religions of, 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 of further East, uh, Confucianism, Taoism, uh, Shinto, that there, is an, um, that there is an impulse of integrating these various practices in a more holistic way. Yes, there's a permeability. And what sort of data do you look at in these chapters? What, where, where do you draw your, your conclusions from? Or what does the book explore? Well, you know, the book uses a fundamental typology. Uh, it's, first of all, a triptych. Uh, three categories. Exclusivism, inclusivism, and pluralism, to which we'll, I will add another later. So exclusivism is the idea that salvation can be achieved. That is salvation meaning the highest good, spiritual good or religious good, can only be achieved 
through one religion, that is exclusivism. Inclusivism is the idea that while it is true that it can be only achieved ultimately through one religion, other religions can prepare one for entry into this one religion. That's inclusivism. Pluralism is the idea that all the religious traditions are capable of achieving your ultimate good equally. So what I have tried to do here is to show where, under what circumstances, the traditions have been inclusive or plural. And so why don't you say a little bit about what we see in Hinduism, for example, in terms yeah. of what do we see? In terms of these three categories? Yes. Now let me back up a bit here. See, there's a general impression abroad that some religions are tolerant and some are not. So most Hindus consider Hinduism tolerant and most outside observers seem to agree with that. And in certain circles, some traditions like Christianity or Islam would be considered intolerant, right? Okay. Now, what I found was in my study of the history of these religions, that all the religions of the world possess the potential for being exclusive, inclusive, and plural, all of them. So the question is, what leads a tradition in a particular direction? Now, the proportion in which this mix, in the proportion in which these elements mix in a tradition may vary, but all three are present. Even Hinduism can be exclusive, and Christianity and Islam can be plural in some of their manifestations. And here the thing which surprised me, which I had not considered as a major point in this discussion, but which emerged as one, was the role of the state. I was just astonished. And I went through their history as to how crucial the signaling by the state is. If the political leadership, which is in power, wants uh, relationships to be tolerant, it can easily manage that in the case of almost all. I must say I wasn't prepared for this. So I, I, there was a kind of a feeble kind of a attempt at pun when I write somewhere in the book that the state of tolerance depends on the state. <laughs> now, so then it's surprising or it was surprising to you to discover through the history of religions uh, in every real, in every tradition of the world, that um, religion has always been um, 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 used for political purposes. Yes, but you know there are, there are two elements to be considered here. One is they are also in competition. What does the state ask you to do? Ultimately, the state asks you to sacrifice your life for the state, right? can draft you and send you to the front. What does the religion ask you to do? Your faith, to stake your life on those beliefs and practices. So this is the source of their attention. Both make equally overarching claims. Where, as you said, the state uses religion is when religion becomes an ideology. So you have this very curious interplay in the history of religions that some ideologies pass themselves off as religions. Marxism. And some religions also pass themselves off as ideologies. The uh, hooked cross of Nazism. 
What was your aim in writing a book on religious tolerance? What is your hope for the... What was your aim? What is your hope in writing this book? My aim was to find out whether resources for promoting tolerance exist within the various religious traditions or not. Not merely in the text, which is of course very important, but in their actual history. Have they actually displayed, displayed tolerance? Because if it is true, as I now see, as I seem to conclude from my study, that all of them are capable of being tolerant, and we can pass the word tolerance also later on. What this means is, first of all, that we should not brand traditions as tolerant or intolerant, or that Hinduism and Buddhism are tolerant and Islam and Christianity are not, you know, things like that because the elements are present in all of them. So this is one very important conclusion to be drawn from this. The second then is that if all of them has this capacity, and if tolerance is a desirable state about which there could be a debate, you know, that in some sense, religious tolerance is desirable, then how can we promote it in the various traditions? Now, from that point of view, it is important that each tradition has a tradition of tolerance. Because when you make an argument to the other party in favor of anything, anything, doing something together, I think it is more convincing for the other person to be demonstrate, for the other person to realize that what you are asking him or her to do or join you in is something which their own tradition promotes, rather than that it is something which you are imposing on the other person. Yeah, either by way of a superior ideal or by way of the greater power you have or the other. See, ultimately, if you want to discuss the word tolerance further, tolerance is a slippery word. I, I grant that. It's a bit ambiguous. It's, but it's gained such currency that I felt compelled to use it, and there are good reasons for using it too. But, you know, if you use that, if you clarify that word further, you can either go this silken smooth route and you can go the granular route. The silken smooth route is to say that all religions are valid, all religions are true, all religions are the same, and so on. The granular approach would say that basically what tolerance means is preference but no exclusion. And if you can show to the other party that this is the position also found within your own tradition and historically, historically and therefore empirically verifiable in a sense. So the climate for religious tolerance, the ecology of religious tolerance is encouraged. Given that you conclude that all of the world's traditions that you study um, have a capacity for uh, tolerance or have uh, historically demonstrated uh, religious tolerance, then Tell us a bit more about what factors obstruct this or what factors, um, uh, what situations and factors and circumstances generate religious intolerance. Yes. See, a very important element in religious intolerance is the sense of security a tradition has. You will find, and many, many scholars have actually drawn attention to this, that when religious traditions feel secure, they tend to be more accommodating. 
You see, Islam in the Middle Ages, when it was the dominant political force in the world, in some way, was far more quote unquote tolerant than the impression one gets now. So this is one very important factor. The other factor, of course, is religious leadership, religious and political leadership and its attitude towards this. I mean, Akbar is a very interesting case from India. Akbar tempered yeah, Islamic extremism in India in, in various ways. And that created a kind of a rapprochement which went to the extent that when the Indian soldiers, largely Hindu soldiers, rebelled against the British, they identified the Mughal ruler, a Muslim ruler, as their representative. So one can also see the power of tolerance. You have the convivencia in Spain, where Islam, Christianity, and Judaism all three flourished together. One is reminded here of Milton's famous line, peace after victory is no less renowned than those of war. Why is the book dedicated to His Holiness the Dalai Lama? Why? Yes, say a bit about that. Yeah, well, there are several reasons. Uh, one is that he has always spoken for the spoken for cordial relationship among religions, not only among religions, but also between religion and the secular world, especially as represented by science. And then there is the long history of the ex expansion of Buddhism over Asia and how Buddhism coexisted with the quote-unquote native traditions of those lands on the whole peacefully for centuries and continues to. And I also find Buddhism very interesting because Buddhism is a missionary religion. You might say that, in, okay, it's nice for Hindus to be tolerant because they are not missionary. You know, it's nice for uh, uh, Sikhs uh, to be tolerant because they are not also missionary in that sense. And for the, for the Jains, but that a religion can be missionary and tolerant is, the, is exemplified by it. Aside from the political pressures, would you say that uh, the theological concepts, um, uh, values of these world religions predispose them either to, towards religious tolerance or intolerance? Well, you know, I want to uh, dig a bit deeper into this. I want to go to an element in human psychology. Human psychology. Suppose at the end of this uh, conversation we are having, one of us felt that somehow in this conversation, something had been revealed to that person, which answers these problems of life, which answers the question, who are we? Where have we come from? Where are we going? Right? Right? Suppose this happens. Can you keep it to yourself? No. So the impulse to convert, quote unquote, is a fundamental human impulse. At the same time, if this happened to you, and you came to me and said, Dr. Sharma, I had this revelation while we were talking, and I want you to be my first follower. <laughs> I, it's perfectly legitimate for me to say thanks, but no thanks. I'm quite satisfied with my religious affiliation at the moment. So the impulse to share what one has religiously and the impulse to be left alone with what one has are two equally fundamental orientations 
of the human psyche. Therefore, tolerance will always be an issue. Yeah, and this is where I think the state comes in because the the rival rights of your your right to want to share and my right to follow my own tradition will always have to be negotiated in some sense. And so it can only be it can never be solved. It has to be constantly resolved to make sure that both parties are having a fair. Is this work this? Comparative enterprise, something that you plan to continue? I haven't thought of that. Um, at the moment, I'm kind of basically satisfied with this uh, because it has been a project of long gestation, very long gestation. Um, How long? Sorry, actually, but as we as we converse, the idea comes to me that the role of the state could be further explored. How long have you been gestating this project? Oh, this project has been in gestation ever since I was in Sydney, Australia, and uh, then I, when I came to Canada, I got a grant to work on it, and uh, that's when I finally decided to move along, and uh, in the sense that I was not going to restrict myself. to the approach already adopted by others namely citing from the beliefs and practices of the tradition i wanted to get into the interstices of history to find out how actually they have behaved in condition which demand that you deal with those who don't share your beliefs and practices certainly a fascinating work uh, at least for those who appreciate uh, the comparative enterprise um and it may well be that uh, such comparative work is necessary for us to find a way to inhabit this global village of ours um do you have any current uh projects beyond this whether on hinduism in particular or or comparative projects but i do have one and uh, that has to do with the manusmriti and uh, it's almost complete now it's uh, a very different take on the manusmriti i think than what we have had so far by placing it in its historical and plural context so that would be probably my next work that sounds fascinating we'll definitely have to have you back on the podcast to talk about that work once it's out i would welcome that of course is there anything else about the book uh, that you wanted to share i i personally think that it's, it's i would like personally to make a plug for the comparative study of religion uh, as a way of uh, without being too preachy about it you know as a way of promoting mutual understanding among religions because curiously when you most people i my colleagues the people i know and i discuss these things they confirm my experience that it has a very curious effect uh when you go into comparative religion uh, rather the comparative study of religion and that is that it enables you to appreciate other traditions more and also your own tradition more So it's a kind of a win-win. Not that one sets out with this idea in mind. 
it's it may not be the intended consequence yeah but it's a foreseeable consequence and given the state of the world that you know i mean i was i was quite struck for it i give you one just example of how your perspective changes after a while doing this book i realized that despite what we think of islam now because of its uh, uh, association in the popular mind with extremism of certain kinds there are at least two places in the quran where it says return evil with that which is better i mean i think this needs to be more widely known and there is one particular passage in the quran which is like a summation of mahatma gandhi's satyagraha so it is this kind of you know the discoveries you make uh, i'll share with you something i learned through christianity i don't know who is to be credited with this statement to is to be credited with this statement some have suggested kirkegard but the statement is purity of heart means wanting one thing only i think it's astonishing insight or how many of us know in the hadith the following hadith the saying of the prophet the ink of the scholar is more sacred than the blood of the martyr cited by no less a scholar than the second greatest muslim in the history of islam al ghazali so this what i use the word reciprocal illumination for this i have a whole book on this on reciprocal illumination almost suggesting that it should be adopted as a method in the study of religion so this ultimately leads me to the fourth category you know which i mentioned three earlier uh the first one was exclusivism the second was inclusivism the third was pluralism and the fourth is universalism that you start looking upon yourself not as the inheritor of just one religious tradition to which you belong but to the you are the, you become the legacy of the entire religious history of humanity and that i call universalism would you say there's a relationship a correlation uh, an affinity uh, an affinity between universalism and the very comparative enterprise of looking at religious traditions in the way you do the, the correlation well i mean this is the recent development uh the universal aspect of it the first stage of the com- in the comparative study of religion was to compare other religions with christianity to their disadvantage after the second world war there was a major shift in our field move away from this and then of course when the input from other religions started coming in like people like gandhi uh there's a set of three terms since we are both from india we can use some terms which are current in india Uh, there is this word for secularism being used in india now sarva dharma sambhav having the same regard for all religions yeah or you might say religious neutrality or you might even call it a secular attitude if you want to give a certain value to secularism from that that's where modern discourses seem to stop you know secular 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 but then there is a further stage where you might say you might think of sarv dharm sadbhav having goodwill towards all religions now we are getting into kind of a gandhian path and then you reach a third stage when you say sarv dharm mambhav 
All religions are mine. Now, of course, we are now moved far beyond tolerance. Yeah. Into the realm of adoption, perhaps. It's one thing to tolerate a child. It's another thing to adopt it. Adopt, yeah. Fascinating. Well, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Uh, for those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Arvind Sharma, who is the Burke's Professor of Comparative Religion uh, at McGill University, uh, Montreal, uh, Canada. Um, uh, stay safe, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating uh, comparative religion. Take care.